Welcome to SEAC Stories, a podcast run by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. I am Natalie Pearson, your host. I'm joined by one of our brilliant young early career researchers, Dr. Rosemary Gray, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Sydney Law School and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Her most recent publication is Prosecuting Sexual and Gender-Based Crimes at the International Criminal Court published by Cambridge University Press, which SEAC had the great pleasure of launching last year. Rose's research brings a gender perspective to international criminal justice in times of genocide and war. And today we're gonna to be talking about her work on gender-based violence in Cambodia through the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. And a heads up for our listeners that this podcast contains sensitive themes and is not appropriate for young listeners. Rose, welcome to the SEAC Stories podcast. Thanks so much, Natalie, great to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about the challenges of prosecuting sexual violence crimes in the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which is the United Nations-backed war crimes court in Cambodia. So could you start by telling us what the Khmer Rouge Tribunal is? When was it set up and what is it trying to achieve? Sure. The Khmer Rouge Tribunal is a body that was set up in 2004 by the Cambodian government in partnership with the United Nations, and it's staffed half by Cambodian people and the other half are foreign UN staff. It's part of a broader system of international criminal justice. This tribunal's mandate is to prosecute senior leaders of the Communist Party of Kampuchea for the violence that they brought upon Cambodia between 1975 and 1979. And that was the time, as you might know, of Pol Pot's rule, which is often called the Khmer Rouge period, which is meaning red Cambodians. And that's a reference to the regime's very extremist communist or red agenda. So what did the Communist Party of Kampuchea do? It outlawed private property. It forced the population into labor projects on farming sites. So they had to work in backbreaking rice fields, backbreaking dam projects, backbreaking irrigation projects. It tortured and it killed enemies and dissidents. It forced people into marriages so that they would produce children who would be the next generation of soldiers and workers for the state. And there aren't very good figures on the death toll. Lots of estimates vary. But some experts say that roughly a quarter of Cambodia's population died in this period due to famine, dreadful living conditions, and of course being killed by the Khmer Rouge. So the job of this tribunal is to piece together the evidence of what happened, to show the country what took place in this really dark period of their history, and to hold those responsible for the crimes to account. It does this by holding trials for war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and also crimes under Cambodian law. And it takes place in a court complex, which is in the capital city in Phnom Penh. The proper name of this court is actually the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, or the ACCC, but in conversation and in the press, people call it the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Truly a very dark period in Cambodia's history. I remember when I was studying modern history at school, seeing some of those first-person accounts of the killing fields and being very distressed at the at the crimes that were committed against people. You know, as a researcher, I become desensitised to that distress. Obviously, for the past decade, I've been reading accounts of torture, sexual violence, murder, all kinds of 
unimaginable crimes in all different conflict situations. And so often you become detached. It's probably a trauma response, becoming detached and desensitised. But even still, sometimes when I'm reading a first-person account, there might be a particular detail that just really strikes a chord. And I often find myself unable to concentrate and in tears and needing to step away from the research before I can return to it again. Yeah, I empathise with that. And I just want to make the observation that although my research focuses on violence in atypical periods, periods of crisis and in war, sexual and gender-based violence is a reality in everyday life as well. And although that's not the focus of my research, I'm always conscious that even though I'm reading about these extraordinary times in history, forced marriage, forced pregnancy, rape, all of these crimes occur in, in the reality of everyday life as well. And that's something that we don't always focus on as an international community. Where else in the world might we find one of these UN-backed war crimes courts or is Cambodia the only place? Yeah, Cambodia is not unique in this regard. International criminal law has quite a long history. It started before we had a United Nations. The first international war crimes courts were in Nuremberg and Tokyo after World War II. And then there was nothing of that sort in the Cold War, but it picked pace again in the 1990s when the United Nations Security Council created two international tribunals, one for the war in the former Yugoslavia and one for the Rwanda genocide. And then in the 2000s, the UN started creating semi-international courts, meaning half national, half international, like the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. And there's also the Sierra Leone War Crimes Court as well. And then on top of these country-specific courts, there is the Permanent International Criminal Court, or the ICC, which is based in The Hague. And this is the major international war crimes court. Its jurisdiction covers over 123 different countries. And before I started looking at Cambodia, the International Criminal Court was really the focus of my research. I have to say, it is a completely different experience visiting the International Criminal Court in The Hague and the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Phnom Penh. In The Hague, you're worlds away from the actual conflict, worlds away from where the crimes happened. And although its staff come from all over the world, all different countries, they do share a common value. They share a common commitment to justice, which is independent and impartial. It's quite different in Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge Tribunal has an advantage. It's based where the crimes happened. This means the population can really engage with the court. School children and people from all over Cambodia can come and visit it. It means Cambodia has a sense of ownership over the legal process. But that national ownership is a double-edged sword. It means that the Khmer Rouge Tribunal is always vulnerable to pressure from the Cambodian government. So political pressure and realpolitik is never far away from this court. That's far from ideal. But as I always hear when I interview judges and lawyers from the Cambodia Tribunal, it's the only realistic compromise. Cambodia was never going to accept an entirely foreign court or a court based in The Hague. And if the tribunal was located somewhere else, it wouldn't have the advantage of being accessible to the Cambodian people. The most recent judgment of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal was delivered in November 2018 and published in March 2019. What was this case about? 
It is a massive case. It's about crimes committed all across Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge period, which as you know is 40 years ago. When the submission was first filed by the prosecutors to kickstart this case, that was 11 years before the judgment. So it has been an extremely long justice process dragging on over a decade. There were four accused in this case, all of them were leaders from the Khmer Rouge party. But the case took so long that before the end of it, two of them had already died. And now, when we're in the appeals stage, there's only one of them, Kusan Pan, who remains alive. It was a major case, the biggest case in the Cambodia Tribunal and one of the biggest war crimes cases ever in the world. It broke new ground by addressing marriage-related crimes against both women and men. And I have to say that the inclusion of these marriage crimes was really a credit to the victim's lawyers who pushed to have sexual and gender-based crimes included in the case. Before we talk about what the judgment drew attention to, could you tell us what the reaction was in Cambodia to the, the slow delay with which the case proceeded and the fact that three of the four accused have not been able to be brought to justice? You know, Natalie, I couldn't actually give a really good answer on that because as a legal researcher, I've always got my head in the law books and I'm not usually out there interviewing the population to see what they think about the cases. So I can say from talking anecdotally with colleagues and with Cambodian people who I know through research, they are disappointed. They would have preferred justice to be quicker. They don't understand still why it took more than 40 years for the crimes to be tried. And they would have liked to have individual reparation, meaning some kind of money compensation for the crimes. They're not going to have that individual payments and they are not going to get full justice because many of the victims, perpetrators and accused are dead. So I think there has been a sense of disappointment that the tribunal couldn't have been quicker and couldn't have given people money. But I think that there is also an appreciation among Cambodian people that there has been this legal process to get the stories heard and that there has been some accountability for crimes which really ripped their society apart. What did the judgment draw attention to? The conviction was really broad. It covered almost four years of genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes in Cambodia in the 1970s. There is so much to say about each of those crimes, but as a feminist researcher, I like to zoom in on the gender-based crimes. So this was the first judgment of any international or semi-international court to recognise forced marriage practices against both male and female victims. Interestingly, there is no crime of forced marriage in the tribunal's statute. So the judges and prosecutors had to be creative. What they did is they used the more flexible crime of inhumane acts and they read the evidence of sexual violence into that crime. Now in Cambodia, many of the victims told the tribunal that for them, one of the most devastating parts of these forced marriages was what they couldn't follow their traditions and their customs about marriage. So the marriages weren't arranged by their families or their parents. They could not consult astrologers to find an auspicious date. And they couldn't enjoy the usual music, the Picasso ritual of the lotus flower, all the different beautiful rituals that are associated with marriage in Khmer culture. The other important thing that the judgment drew attention to was the issue of rape 
within forced marriages. So we had truckloads of evidence that couples were forced by soldiers to have sexual intercourse so that they would produce children who would be the next generation of workers and fighters. And many of the victims recalled that when they were in their forced marriage ceremonies, when they were being paired up with a stranger and married off, sometimes 60, sometimes 200 couples at a time, they were made to take a vow where they would promise to produce children for Ankar, which is the word that was used for promise to produce children for the Khmer Rouge. In reference to those marriage rituals that you've mentioned, I understand that one of these is a dance performance. Is that right? Marriage rituals in Cambodia include this beautiful ritual with a paka flower, where the couple comes together and does a celebration and it represents their unity. And where the dance comes in is that when the tribunal handed down its conviction, it was also able to endorse different reparations projects. That means projects that are meant to heal the victims or give them some chance to have some kind of remedy for their crimes. And because a lot of the victims were not literate or because they were not comfortable talking explicitly about marriage, they instead came up with this beautiful dance performance, which is called Pukasla Krom Ankar, meaning this marriage ritual in the time of the Khmer Rouge. And this dance performance is a remedy that the tribunal helped to create so that victims and survivors of forced marriage could see a performance that told the story of forced marriage in the Khmer Rouge period and gave them a way to bring back some of the music, the rituals and the love that they associated with marriage before the Khmer Rouge period. Thank you. And I understand that's a project that you've been involved in to some degree, and it really is quite a, a wonderful project that involves the community that's bringing in psychologists and art therapists to act as a type of, as you say, reparation. I'm so glad you asked about that dance, which is a reparation for forced marriage. It's something that I've been researching with two Cambodian colleagues, a psychologist called Yim Sothiri and a young human rights activist called Kum Somali. And together we have written an article which looks at this beautiful dance performance which is meant to commemorate and provide some healing to survivors of forced marriage in Cambodia. And we might be able to share that when we circulate the details of the podcast, so stay tuned. So one of the research methodologies that you use is to pay attention to the gaps and the silences. In regards to this case, by noticing which sexual and gender-based crimes the trial chamber did not describe in their judgment, mm -hmm. what crimes were overlooked? That's right, Natalie. A hallmark of feminist legal research is paying attention to gaps and silences, what's been left out and whose experiences are being ignored. So when I was applying that method to study this judgment, I noticed that although forced marriage had been prosecuted, there were other types of sexual and gender-based violence that had been overlooked. And this included sexual violence against men within forced marriages. It included forced breeding, people being forced to bear children for the state. And it also included crimes that were directed at sexual and gender minorities, people who are transgender, people who are homosexual. A very significant example of sexual violence that I think was overlooked in this case was forced breeding. And I'm talking about the evidence that women were forced to undergo pregnancy and to give birth during the Khmer Rouge period. 
as well as the evidence that men in forced marriages were forced to impregnate their wives. Now, I say this evidence as very serious. It's an example of trampling on people's reproductive autonomy. But for the judges in this case, this forced breeding did not rise to the level of an international crime. What about the repression of alternative or diverse sexual orientations? The leading witness of this was a transgender woman who spoke about her experience of having to live as a man during the Khmer Rouge period. She explained that she had been living in Phnom Penh as a transgender woman and when the regime came in, they said that she had to act as a man, meaning she had to cut her hair as if she was a man, she had to work in the men's unit and she had to marry a cisgender woman. This was devastating for this transgender woman. It meant that she could not live her life according to her own gender identity. It also meant that she had to change her sexual orientation. She was attracted to men and usually would have sex with men, but instead she was forced to marry and have sex with a cisgender woman. There was not a huge amount of evidence of these types of violations against sexual and gender orientation minorities in the tribunal, but her evidence made it clear that she was not alone, that there were other transgender and homosexual people who were forced to strip away their chosen identities by the Khmer Rouge period. And she explained that some of her friends in this community committed suicide during the regime because it was so egregious for them to live in that way. Was that quite innovative to have her as a witness in the case? Yes, it was. That was the credit of herself who had the bravery to come forward with her story and of the victim's lawyers in the case, especially her representative, Silky Studitsky, who really pushed to have this minority voice included in the case. It was an innovation. I think it was very important to have these stories told. And my colleague, Maria Alanda at La Trobe University has written a really interesting piece on this representation of transgender stories in the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. But although the stories came out, I have to say they did not get much attention in the judgment at all. The judges oscillated between describing this witness as a woman and a man. They couldn't get her gender identity straight. They also did not put emphasis on the type of suffering that she experienced because she was a transgender person. That specific type of harm and that discrimination was really lost in the judgment. Okay, so the judgment trivialised men's experiences of sexual violence. It showed an inability to understand unconventional gender identities and it placed little emphasis on violations of reproductive autonomy. Are these recurring omissions in international criminal law? And what does that suggest about how we understand criminality in relation to sexual violence? Yes, Natalie, these are all examples of the type of sexual violence that has been overlooked, not only by the Cambodian tribunal, but by almost all of the different international courts and tribunals that I spoke about at the beginning of this podcast. Historically, sexual violence in general was seen as not a very serious part of war. And the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals did a really poor job of recognising sexual crimes. There was a lot of movement by women's rights activists and feminist scholars in the 1990s to push sexual violence onto the agenda and try and get international courts, including the International Criminal Court in The Hague, to take seriously conflict-related sexual and gender-based crimes. And in the last two decades, there has been a shift in legal practice in war crimes courts. 
We are now seeing rape, especially rape against women and girls, routinely investigated and routinely prosecuted as an international crime. But I think that the idea of sexual violence is still quite narrowly understood. And although there is now a lot of accountability for the rape of women and girls, we are still not seeing other types of sexual and gender-based crimes getting the same attention. There are still ongoing and recurring gaps when it comes to sexual violence against men, when it comes to violations of reproductive autonomy, such as forced pregnancy, and when it comes to violence against LGBTI people. So there's one man remaining of the four accused, mm -hmm. and I understand that he has launched an appeal mm. uh, against the judgment. So this case mm. is a long way from being over. And that might make it difficult for you to answer this question, but I'd like to understand what you think is the long-term legacy of this case. I actually think it's easy to answer because although the proceedings are on appeal, I think for many people in Cambodia, it's treated as if it's done. It's treated as if there's been a conviction and the stories have come out. I think the long-term legacies are that gender justice is now part of international criminal law, especially forced marriage against both men and women. I think that the case has made a massive contribution to making sexual and gender-based crimes visible in the Khmer Rouge period. Although, as I said, the focus has been primarily on the rape of women and girls and on forced marriage, but there have been other types of sexual and gender-based crimes that were overlooked in this case. I also think that the tribunal has had a capacity building effect. For the Cambodian lawyers who work at the tribunal, and who I have interviewed, they've explained that working on this giant war crimes case has been a learning process. They have learned lots of new skills and lots of new legal concepts from the United Nations lawyers that they worked with. But I have to say, I have not heard United Nations lawyers say the same thing about the skills and knowledge that they learned from Cambodian colleagues. It seems to have been quite a one-way learning process in this tribunal. Rose, thank you so much for doing this research and for sharing it with us. I appreciate what you said earlier about becoming desensitised in a way to the work and to the stories that you read. And I think it's just so important to remember that there are many people still alive in Cambodia who are living with the legacy of these traumas and to acknowledge their bravery in coming forward. And I thank you very much for sharing their stories and your research with us today. Thank you, Natalie. It's a real privilege to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.